Um, dear Jesus, we just come before you and confess my need for you. I need you every hour, even more than that, Lord. I need you for this sermon. We need you to live out our marriages. Um, we need you at work. We need you throughout the day, how to be good parents. There's so many ways we need you. So, Lord, we just acknowledge our need. We need to depend on you. We reject self-sufficiency. And, Lord, speak through me. And um, as I give this message, I want my words to be your words, not just from myself, my own logic, my own wisdom. And I pray that this really helps us, Lord, be a people that are dependent, that rely on you in every circumstance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that my son Judah, every time we say amen, he says amen, and I hear it just sticks out. So um, I don't have any slides this morning, um, so open up with me in your Bibles. We're just going to walk through a passage, and like Ty said a couple weeks ago, at the Refuge, uh, only at the Refuge can you be in a sermon series and not speak on it for like weeks, but we're still in a sermon series on Mark, okay? So we're going to be finishing up the last section of Mark chapter six. I'm not going to quite finish because I didn't think I was going to have time to finish. He, he, he does some ministry at the end of the chapter. Um, I didn't think I had time to hit on that, but it's a great little paragraph there. But so the main point is really what Susan was already talking about. It's self-reliance, self-sufficiency versus really depending on, relying on God in our lives um, and even how God will allow circumstances and changes in your situation to help you learn how to do this more, right? It's for your good. He doesn't want to harm you. He, he lets things happen a lot of times so that you will learn, like she was saying, how sometimes marriages can be hard or, or, or parenting or anything like that. He'll allow those things to shine a light on issues in your life so that you will learn to depend on him more and more. Um, we live in this culture like she said, so I'm going to, like, she kind of gave my sermon, which is great. We're just going to pound this in. Um, so like she said, we live in this culture that really values independence, values picking yourself up, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you doing you, that type of thing. And there are, we were talking in leadership this morning, there are good things to be uh, independent of, right? And not to just rely on like living in your parents' basement all your life, stuff like that. But a lot of times we take that into our walk with God and we we know we're saved by grace through faith, all this stuff, but then we kind of do the Christian life in our own power and in our own strength. So we need to reject that type of self-sufficiency and learn to rely on God. And this has been on my mind in just the last couple of weeks is what I was going to teach on and knowing that this Mark passage was coming up and then it kind of hit how it all tied together. A lot of times I was going, I, and it's we're kind of a mixed bag. You know, I don't think I'm totally like always relying on myself, but I think in a lot of ways I do. And then I rely on God in some other ways. So I'm kind of a mixed bag, but I was realizing how much, like when I meet with people or disciple or lead stuff, how much I would usually, the first thing I ran to was my own wisdom and my own logic. Um, and then I would kind of, you know, pray later or something like that, or ask God for help later and how much more I needed to be going to him first, depending on him first, relying on him first. Um, and I was telling Peyton the other day when we were meeting how funny it would be if I didn't put this into practice in preparing this sermon. <laughs> you know, I'm like built like writing my notes for sermon on depending on God, but just not really depending on God writing the sermon. That'd be kind of ridiculous. So I was really praying and trying to put this into practice myself as I prepared the sermon today. 
So at the, at the root of really relying on yourself, self-sufficiency, it's good old-fashioned pride, isn't it? It's depending on self, looking to self, that type of thing. So I thought a quote from Andrew Murray, he's got a whole book on humility. It's really good. But he has a quote and he says, uh, humility is the place of entire dependence on God. It's the first duty and the highest virtue of creation. And it's the root of every, every virtue finds its root in humility. So pride or the absence of humility is the root of every sin, every evil. And I think that's true. If you think about the sin in your life or other, you know, other instances in, in, in your past, what's the root of it? Well, it's looking to self, looking to self for satisfaction and fulfillment, for guidance, et cetera, Look, depending on your own wisdom. So we're going to jump into this passage um, in Mark, and it's really going to hit on this idea of self-sufficiency and learning to depend on and rely on God, the Holy Spirit, in every circumstance. So a little context. Um, so we're diving into Mark, the end of Mark 6, but a little bit of context. In Mark 3, if you remember, Jesus appoints the 12 disciples. And I can't remember who did a teaching on that. I think it was Ty. Um, and there's a Mark 3, verse 14 through 15 is this section that Jesus appointed his disciples and he said, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So that was the reason he appointed them to be his disciples. And one of the main things, if you remember, one, like to be with Jesus, it's not just learn a bunch of stuff, it's to be with him. Learning is key, but when they were with him, they're in close physical proximity. They're seeing him, listening to him, eating with him, seeing him cast out demons seeing him heal people. It's amazing, right? And we've said here before, if you kind of do the math, they're spent roughly maybe 10,000 hours with Jesus being discipled by the best discipler ever. And then sometimes we miss this, but he sends them out to do the same kind of stuff that he was doing. So they're with him, they're learning, and then he sends them out to do the same type of thing. And then we see them. That, that's exactly what plays out. They're with him doing all this stuff. And then he sends them out in chapter six, which I think Ty also talked on that one. So I'm I'm bringing in Ty's sermons, um, which is, is cool. He did a great job. Um, but in Mark 6, the beginning, Jesus does exactly that. He sends them out to do what? Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. So the same type of stuff Jesus was doing, he sends them out to do. So that's the context. And then there's this little break where we get the death of uh, John the Baptist and an account of how that all took place and kind of the wickedness involved and how persecution is going to come to Christians. If you're doing things right, you're going to receive persecution. Then we get to our passage, Mark 6, 30 through uh, 52. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all, the placement of these two stories. We're going to go over, we're going to go over Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then we're going to go over Jesus walking on water. Now, if you were raised in a home like me, these are very well-known passages. So what happens with well-known passages? Well, it's easy to just kind of tune out and be like, hey, I know this thing. I know, I know what it is about and everything, but I want you to try to really... Focus on yourself. What is God saying to you? What is God wanting you to, to hear, get from, apply to your life today? So starting in verse 30, we're just going to walk through this verse by verse. So verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So remember, they're just coming back from the first mission. And this is really the first time they're called apostles, which means sent out ones. They were referred to as apostles in Mark 3, but they hadn't been sent out yet. So now they've been sent out. And they're officially apostles, sent out ones. And again, real discipleship has this component. It's not just sitting and uh, receiving, 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 receiving. It's also, you got to go out and try stuff. You got to own some of this stuff. 
yourself. Try it and then get corrected and learn how to do it better, et cetera. So really this return is like they're returning for a debrief with Jesus, right? They went, they went out, they did some of the stuff, they're returning for a debrief with Jesus. Let's get together and talk about how this thing went. And I think it's fun to imagine what this kind of looked like. Uh, you know, they all get back together in a room or whatever. And Peter's like, man, it was amazing. I prayed for this woman and she she was blind and now she now she's not. It was awesome. Or John's like, James, where in the world did that boldness come from, brother? That was crazy, you know? Or Philip, like, man, did you see that one guy's face when you cast that demon out of his bomb? Like, that was insane. So it's kind of fun to imagine what this would have actually been like. They're doing stuff they've never done before, right? This, this is going to, this got to be like mind blowing to them, how God's using them. Now, I've seen this before in my life and other people's other new young disciples. What kind of happens when you start trying some ministry and you, you start having some success? Yep. Michael, Michael's back there and he's like, (laughs) yeah, you start getting a big head, right? You start getting prideful. So I think that's, and I see that happen all the time. It's easy to believe that happened in the disciples. It's a major scheme of the devil. You kind of come in really humble, teachable, and then you start doing some stuff. And then you, you're like, I've got this thing figured out, man. I got it all together. So they come together for this debrief. And I think that is in the mix as to what's going on here. Next thing he says in verse 31, he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That's his response, right? For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So remember, in response to them returning, in response to to this debrief, kind of everything they must have talked through, he's saying, you've got to get away and rest with me. You know, that's, that's his first response. They've been busy with ministry and even the, the phrasing that Mark puts here, they had no leisure even to eat. Have you, have you ever been there? Like you've been so busy, you just forgot to eat the whole day. I don't think I've ever quite been that busy. Maybe it's just because I love food, but um, some, I know Danielle sometimes has been really busy. She'll, I'll be like, did you, did you get lunch? And she's like, oh no. Uh, yeah. Um, but they had no leisure even to eat. Cause I guess there's so much ministry, so many people around so many, so many needs to be met. They didn't even have leisure to eat. So think super, super busy. And Jesus wants them to get away with him to rest. Now take note. I think this is precedence for us to do some things like this with Jesus, get rest with Jesus. But I'm not saying, and I don't think it's saying is you just get away for some me time, you know, for uh, uh, kicking your feet up and watching a football game necessarily. I think it's focused resting time with Jesus. That's the main thing. It's getting your attention on Jesus. It's getting your tank filled back up. It's getting your spiritual battery recharged with Jesus. Um, and the difference is, is your focus on him or is it focus on yourself? Laziness is the result of really having your focus on yourself, doing what you kind of feel like doing at the time. But I think good spiritual rest is this, your focus and attention is on Jesus. I think it could look a number of ways. One, one is... Um, having that regular time with the Lord. But I also think it's important to have um, something like this built into your life. And this comes right after a minute, a tough ministry situation. And before more ministry, they're withdrawing, they're seeking to withdraw to get significant time, rest time with Jesus. So do you, do you do that? Do you have that built into your life? Right. And I have a story. There was one particular time 
when I was leading the 210 house, uh, now it's what the house Joe is leading. And I, I don't remember the name. I do remember the name. It's not the 210 house anymore, unfortunately. But um, I was leading it and there's just all sorts of crazy stuff happening that week. Um, there's the one guy who was really mad at me. Um, and he was, I can't remember if he was, he was getting kicked out yet. There's another guy who just had, was battling all sorts of stuff in his mind. And I was just overwhelmed. I was just completely overwhelmed. And I remember God almost tangibly saying to me, you got to get away and be with me, you know, but, and I've had my time with the Lord that morning. Right. But I knew that's what I needed. So I just canceled a bunch of stuff and I went and just spent time with the Lord praying, seeking his face, giving my anxieties, my burdens to him worshiping him. And it was like magic, man. It was crazy how God just took those burdens away from me, filled my cup, gave me joy and peace and enabled me to get through that. And he also gave me wisdom in that situation as well. So do we regularly depend on Jesus that way? Are you just full of, are we just full of self-sufficiency thinking we can do it on our own, that we've got it all figured out? And I think those significant times resting in the presence of Jesus is an act, a way to declare your dependency, to show your dependency on him. We need him. Every hour, we need him. So I think that's a point to be made from that verse. Now, moving on to verse 33. So remember, they're going away. They're getting in this boat to a desolate place. A lot of times Mark says cool details like that, a desolate place. So next, now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when they went ashore, he sees a great, they saw, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And if you recall kind of the sermons in Mark up to this point, Mark is super focused on how the popularity of Jesus is growing and growing. Um, it's spreading like crazy, but think about this again, put yourself there. This is kind of crazy. They get in this boat and apparently some of the people were like, I know where he's going. I see that trajectory of that boat. I'm going to, I'm going to run there or I'm going to get there ahead of him. Right. I'll see it. Race. you. See you there. You know, that's wild. Do you, so do you, like, they really wanted to be with Jesus, right? They wanted to be there that bad. They're like, I'm going to get there. So he steps off the boat or soon after or whatever, I'm, I'm going to be there. There was a crowd there too. It wasn't just like two or three people. So do you and I, do we desire to be with Jesus that much? That we'll put effort into making sure we get there, making sure we have that. Do we put that kind of effort into it? Because we see the need that we have, right? Another point I wanted to make from this. So they, um, they're going away with Jesus to get rest, right? That's the whole point. They're going to rest. They're going to, to withdraw. And then wham, there's like this huge crowd there, right? And we see later there's about 5,000 men. So that's even more, more like if you count the women and children, tons of people, right? What does Jesus do? Does he be like, ah, sorry, guys, come back another time. We're trying to get away from people right now. You know, shoo. No, no, he doesn't do that. What is, what happens? He has compassion on them. And I just want us to think about this deeply. The word splunk nizomai. If you remember, and Sophia Jones has it tattooed on her arm because it's this deep feeling that God has. It's this gut moving compassion that he has that moves him to do good for people. Right. And Sophia, I know specifically feels like that's what, that's what God used to break her out of the bondage that she was in. 
and it go it ties back to God's character. This beautiful depiction of God's character in Exodus 34, that God's gracious, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who he really is. And so we see that at work here. He is motivated by compassion for them. And so he stops and starts teaching them. The compassion he feels makes him stop. It wasn't just like, oh, I guess they're here. I guess I got to teach them. No, he was moved and motivated by a deep compassion for them. Right? I just think that's really beautiful. And I think that should give you and I assurance about how he feels about you, right? If you were in that crowd, he would have stopped for you because he loves you and he feels deeply about you that way. It's not just some, you know, it's not just some other, other people he feels that way. It's you. And what's interesting to notice, he most likely didn't hardly know any of these people. Maybe he'd seen them before. Maybe he talked to them. But a lot of them, I guarantee you, he did not know. And he felt this compassion even for them. Right? That's beautiful. And he said, Mark says he felt this compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no one to guide them to God, right? They're kind of floundering out on their own. And God had, I, I believe God had tried to set up a system where Israel and then the leaders in Israel were supposed to be doing that. They, they were supposed to be pointing people to God. And then Israel as a nation was supposed to be pointing people to God. And they're just failing on all accounts. So these people don't have anyone to teach them the things of God. So he feels compassion for them. And he starts teaching them. So another little point, this should shape your view, my view of interruptions in our lives, right? Um, a lot of times we're going from task to task and then interruptions always, they just feel, even if it's something, somebody really needs something, we're just like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to get on with my task. But oftentimes I think interruptions are, are things God wants us to stop and evaluate what's most important here. Is it getting your task done or is it some, some person's need that you can meet? You know, there's bad interruptions in life. I'm thinking like if you're sharing the gospel with someone and somebody uh, random tries to come distract you, that's a bad interruption, bad distraction, right? But I think a lot of times inter interruptions are these opportunities to minister to people and we need to be conscious and listening and available and willing to be interrupted from our normal tasks throughout the day, right? Because Jesus was, if you go through especially like I think it's in, um, oh, it's the story with the uh, centurion and then the woman who's bleeding, et cetera. And he's, so he's interrupted time after time after time in ministry. And he's always dealing with the person and then keep going. And then he gets interrupted and he's dealing with that situation. So a lot of times interruptions are ministry opportunities. So do you see them like that, right? Do you see them like that? Or are you just so focused on your tasks uh, and getting those things done? But again, let's be people that are so, moved with this deep compassion of Jesus that we're willing to be interrupted and speak and minister to, to people, right? They're all around us. So moving on, verse 35, it's growing late. And he says, and when it grew late, Mark, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, and this seems reasonable. He says, okay, this is, they say, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Let's send these people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. So let's imagine this. Let's try to put ourselves there, right? It's getting late. The disciples, you know, they're probably like, hey, this was supposed to be us resting, us spending time with Jesus. And now we got interrupted. Let's kind of get back to that thing. Um. Or perhaps maybe I think as well, a genuine concern for these people. 
that it's getting late. They don't have any, this is a desolate place. They don't have any place to stay. They don't have any food. Let's get them going. So they just get them out of here so they can um, get food, get shelter, et cetera. And the reply from Jesus is baffling. If you think about it, he says, you give them something to eat. How would you have responded if you were in that situation? Right. You'd be like, uh, I got nothing, man. It's re- it sounds ridiculous, right? And I, <laughs> I can kind of imagine myself. Um, like, did you, did you hear what we said? Like, how how are we supposed to give him something to eat? And we get the response right after this. They say to him, "Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat?" It's kind of this. This is their reaction. It seems flabbergasted, maybe even a little bit sarcastic. Like, how is this going to happen? We don't have this type of money. If you do a little math, you can kind of figure out roughly how much this would be. Um, it's roughly like twenty-eight to thirty thousand dollars if you're trying to feed that many people. And a denarius was a single day's wage for a worker. That's an insane amount of money. That's a lot of people there, right? A lot of money. So they're like, we nobody has this money. There's no way we can do this thing. There's no way we can pull this thing off. And then in verse 38, if you turn back to your Bible, Jesus replies, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So (laughs) you can kind of imagine them being like, what in the world? There's no, I guess we'll go and see. I guess we'll go find out how many loaves we have. All right. And when they found out, they said, okay, we got five loaves and two fish. That's all we got, man. These people didn't, you know, nobody prepared. They just saw Jesus leaving and they just started going there, right? Nobody thought to bring food. So then he commands all the people, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And then they take, he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, 12 baskets full. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So remember, that's just counting the men. If you have women and children there as well. This is incredible. Again, we've heard this story a lot, but this is just astounding. Can you imagine watching this or being there? How did this thing, it's like, how did this thing go down? Could they like see the baskets filling up? You know, or was it something like when they took a piece, it just like, I don't know, reappeared or I don't, you know, exactly how this happened. I think we'll have to figure that out when we get there, but it happened. And, you know, how much did the people, everyone there, how much did they realize? I think some of them realized what's happened from the account we get in John that some of them realized, hey, this, this was a miracle because in John, it says they wanted to take Jesus and make him their king at that point. But their image of what a king was, was a military leader. And he, he gets away from them in that at that point, because they're not getting what he's saying. Mark, we don't get that. So I think there's some people that probably understood, some people that were like, had no idea, no clue what had just happened, how this miracle took place. Amazing, right? And just to keep anyone from imagining that a miracle actually didn't take place, right? They gather 12 baskets full, 12 baskets full. So in case someone was like, hey, it's, it was a miracle, but it was a miracle of sharing, sharing. They all took a little nibble, right? And somehow it lasted. It's like, no, this was totally a real, real miracle, right? They gathered 12 baskets of leftovers, right? This has such cool references, this idea of bread and who the bread comes from uh, in the Old Testament and some of other Jesus' other teachings. 
So I just wanted to give a brief explanation of some of the depth of imagery that's going on here. So in Exodus 16, after God delivered his people from the Egyptians, the people have been complaining. Then they're talking about wanting to go back to Egypt to go back into slavery. Why? Because they had good food there, right? They had good food. So God provides them bread. He provides them bread, manna from heaven. And he does that for 40 years, sustain them for 40 years. He provides God as the provider of bread to them for 40 years. And then in John, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John's account, also cool little fact I forgot to mention, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is in all four gospels. So I think it's that kind of should elevate our, it's like, man, this is important. What is Jesus trying to say here, right? So in John, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says an amazing line. Some of those people who were fed after him come back later and they want more food. And Jesus says to them in John, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Back in the Old Testament, he said, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it was my father. It was God who gave you the true bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you've seen me and yet you don't believe. I think clearly this miracle is pointing to a deeper truth, right? He's like, I'll give you physical food. And remember, just like in the Old Testament, who gave them food? It was God. So it was, it was pointing them to the, hey, this guy who's giving you food right now, he's God. Really cool, huh? I think so. But also pointing to a much higher level, Jesus is the bread of life. So physical bread satisfies your physical desires. He says, I'm like that spiritual bread. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to satisfy every, all these other needs that you have. Your needs for love, acceptance, purpose, all these things. I'm going to fulfill those, right? And physical food, you eat it and then you get hungry again right? But he's going to be this bread that lasts. He's going to be the satisfaction, the soul satisfaction we're all longing for, and it's going to last because he's the bread of life. He's the bread sent from heaven. Um, but here's, so that's, that was a, it's just a cool, it's like, this is, that miracle is pointing to who Jesus is, what he came to do. But I wanted to focus on another aspect of this. Jesus had, he told his disciples something kind of ridiculous to do, to go find, to go provide for them themselves, right? And then in their own efforts, what do they bring him? They bring him five loaves and two fishes. Nowhere near what's required. It fell so utterly, utterly short. And I think it was to demonstrate their own need. Because remember, what did they just come back from? They came back from doing ministry and everything. Tendency to get prideful. And I think he's trying to show them, what do you get if you just apply your own efforts? If you just rely on yourself, it falls so utterly short. You need to depend on me, Jesus. So because, you know, five loaves, two fishes, what would that feed? Two or three people, maybe? I don't know. Not very many. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think dependence on God means you just sit on your hands and let stuff happen and assume God's just going to do stuff for you. I think there's this engagement. There's this surrender with him. But at the end of the day, realizing your own actions bring like your own, depending on your own wisdom, strength, logic, doesn't get you very far at all. We need God. Like the song, we need God every hour. And in some ways, we were talking in, in the meeting this morning, in some ways, a lot of times that's depending and relying on even the practical wisdom in the word of God, right? He's given us a brain. 
we got to learn how to use our brains, learn the practical stuff. Because a lot of times we're not depending on even the simple practical things God's given us in his word. Sometimes it does look like waiting, but you're praying intensely, right? You're not just passively sitting by expecting God to do everything. So there's this active engagement in depending on God instead of yourself. So I want to ask you and I want to ask myself, to what level are we really, to what level are we depending on and relying on ourselves rather than God? How much do we realize how much we need him and how silly our efforts are apart from him, right? So we see what Jesus does with the bread, how it feeds everybody. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's true. It's showing them who he is, how he wants to help people because of compassion, etc. So let's move on to verse 45 and 46. So right after this, it says immediately. Remember, Mark's always doing this. He's always like, and then, and then, and then, and then, immediately. So immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So the disciples leave. He dismisses the crowd. Then he goes up and spends time with his father in prayer. And I think this is a little odd if you think about it. Because remember, their goal was to go there so they would get rest with Jesus. And then they get interrupted and do some ministry. And they get, there's, a, there's an amazing miracle. I think this is still on Jesus' mind that he still needs time with God. He still needs time in prayer. But he sends his disciples away. And I, I, I really think it's kind of tying into the same theme. He's like, I'm going to send them away. Let's see what they do with some distance. Do they, do they actually realize they need this? Do they realize they need time with me? Or are they going to just rely on themselves? Are they getting the point? I also want to take note, um, notice the prayer life of Jesus. We talk about this a lot. Like he's our example. Notice his prayer life. This is just after a big ministry situation, right? He just ministered to thousands and thousands of people. And he knows I need to take some significant time and pray. So do we do that? Do we have a prayer life that looks like that? He dem- Jesus demonstrated dependence on God. So who are we to think we can do it without God? It's silly. It's ridiculous, right? So I think he's, I think the point is let's see what the disciples now do with some distance. Are they, are they going to own this stuff? Are they going to own their need and, and, and see how much they need him, depend on him, or are they going to go back to kind of their default, uh, depending on themselves? So verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, or he meant to pass by them. So we see there's the, they go out in the boat, and they're starting to make headway, and they hit a bunch of wind, a storm of some sort. But it mostly just mentions the wind, and they can't make it very far. They're rowing, 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 don't make it very far at all, right? So I've thought about this before, and there's a lot of stuff in commentaries about this. How did, how did he see them, right? How does he see them? It's super dark outside. It's night. I don't know. I don't know how he saw them. I mean, maybe it was a super, it was, it was windy, but it was a super clear night, so he could just see them. Um, or maybe the Holy Spirit enabled him to really see them and know what was going on. I don't, I don't know exactly how that works. It doesn't tell us, but the point is he saw them. And he sees the trouble that they're in, and he wants to help them. 
So one of the points I want to make from that is no matter what trial or tribulation you're going through, he sees you, even if it feels like he's far away, he sees you, he knows what you're going through, and that should bring tremendous comfort to you. It does to me. All the more reason to just rely on and depend on him and trust him with everything. So he comes to them walking on the water, and that should just blow our minds, right? Like um, a lot of times, again, this is one of those things we hear a lot. We see kind of people make jokes about it. There's memes and all this stuff online about Jesus walking on the water, but that's astounding. Plus, if you think about it, it's, a, it's dark out and it's windy and this guy comes walking to you out on the water, right? Why? Why does he come? I think he wants to help them. I think he really wants to help them because remember, he's moved by compassion. He's moved by compassion for his disciples and he's moved by compassion for you. It doesn't really say that they're like sinking, but they're in some trouble. They've gone, they've, they've kind of expended their strength. They've come to the end of their ropes. It also says in that text that it was the fourth hour. It was the fourth watch, sorry, the fourth watch. So back then they used to divide up the night into watches. And the fourth watch really was around 3, maybe 4 a.m. in the morning. So they've been going at this for a while, right? Just rowing, 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 not getting anywhere. They've given it, they've given it their best shot, and they've not made it very far at all. Now, the next part was, this next line was a real head-scratcher for me for a while. It says, he meant to pass them by. He was going to go past them. And I was just like, what in the world does that mean? Mark's the only place where this happens, where it says that. None of the other accounts say that at all. And it was, I mean, there's a lot of explanations. I mean, one of them is he's like, uh, you're going to the other side. Bye, I'll see you. I'll race you there. I got this God thing going on. I can just walk on water. Uh, see you, suckers. Um, no, I don't think that was it at all, right? There's a lot of theories. I was very confused how it fits in to what Mark's trying to get across. And then I was just listening to a random Neil T. Anderson book. It had nothing to do with this. It was on restoring broken relationships in your family, like difficult relationships. It's a great book. I was listening to it and all of a sudden he talks about a sermon he gave on that passage and he just clearly said what he thought it meant. And I was like, it's so simple. And I think it's this, Jesus is not interested in helping self-sufficient people who are depending on relying on themselves. So he was going to pass them by. But I think the whole time he's wanting them to realize who he is. He's walking out there to help them and ask for help. And that's what he wants them to do. But then it seems to kind of all go out the window because they think he's a ghost. So, um, yeah, it kind of all goes downhill from there because they freak out. And that's what we see, verse 49. But they saw him walking on the sea and they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, ah! But they all saw him and they were terrified. So they didn't recognize who he was. So I think that whole thing goes, kind of goes out the window. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. It's me. It's Jesus. I'm here. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So he gets into the boat. They see him. They're freaking out. And he, he, he tells them who he is. He makes it clear to them who he is. And remember that kind of, and this, it doesn't, it doesn't say this, but this is what I think is going on. He wanted them to see him, recognize him, and ask for help to depend on him because clearly there's something there's something about what had happened with the loaves feeding the 5,000 that they were supposed to understand and apply it here and they just missed it they whiffed it entirely right 
Um, I think this should be comforting to us as well. Even though I, th- they, I think they missed the whole point of what Jesus was trying to get across, he still comes and he helps them. He still comes and he helps them because he loves them. He has compassion on them. We see that time and time with the disciples when they don't understand, they don't get it. They're dense. They're hard-hearted. The people around them are hard-hearted as well. And he still keeps loving them. He still keeps showing compassion on them and helping them. So they didn't understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. So I think they were supposed to see, hey, they were supposed to recognize from the bread. Jesus is the bread of, uh, of heaven. He's the bread from heaven. He's supposed to provide all these things for me. I need to be able to ask him for help. And they didn't get it at all. Their hearts were hard towards that. They didn't understand it. They were trying to get through it in their own strength and depend on themselves. And it wasn't working very good for him at all. So what does this mean for us today? How do we, how do we apply this today? And there's two kind of two main points that I want to go over. One of them is to just realize what is the gospel? And Susan kind of talked about this. It's to utterly depend on Christ, not yourself, for your salvation. Every other religion, really, at its core, is self-sufficiency. It's relying on yourself, your own ability to keep certain laws, keep certain rules, to attain to your salvation, to hopefully... Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or you fulfilled a certain law uh, good enough so that when you stand before Jesus, he'll let you in, right? That's self-sufficiency, and that's not how it works, right? And I think I think really that mentality of, like, you can earn it, you can depend on yourself, it just stinks to God. It just stinks, because from his perspective, how far short we fall. Romans says that. For we all fall short, everyone falls short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is why the gospel is such good, amazing news to us. Because yes, we fall so far short, but we have to admit that and ask God for help. Say, God, save me. I believe you are who you say you are. Save me. And I accept your gift of salvation. That's what salvation is. It's an utter dependence on the work of Christ on the cross, not on your own good deeds. Um, Michael and I were talking once, Michael Russell um, and he was saying, we were talking about, uh, um, salvation and how it works and, and Calvinism and all sorts of things. But I think this is so true. He said, if you're drowning in the ocean, you're going under, you're bobbing, going under, and somebody comes and saves you, throws you a life buoy or whatever with a rope, right? And you grab onto it and they pull you in and you're saved. How ridiculous would that be to stand up on deck and be like, I did it. I saved myself. Nobody does that, right? Nobody does that at all. You know, it wasn't you that saved you. It was the people. It was the it was the, bur- it was the boat. It was the people on the boat that threw you the life preserver, right? And so, ultimately, salvation is a dependence on Jesus's work for you on the cross. So, have you have you made that decision to give Christ everything, to depend on Him fully for your salvation, or are you still depending on yourself, your good deeds, your own righteousness? Because that will fall short. So if you haven't done that today, if you haven't just given Jesus everything, surrendered to him, depended on his sacrifice on the cross, do that today. There's no other more important decision you could make. So come talk to me or Richard or Tim or somebody. Get that get that dealt with. So that's number one. Number two is for, okay, what, what about after that? For Christians, 
who are saying, I'm in with the Lord, I'm surrendered. Where do we lose this idea of dependence on God? Because a lot of times I think we we realize and recognize that about salvation, but then we kind of live the rest of our life following the Lord in our own strength. You and I don't need to stop. We, we, we can't have this mindset. We need to keep relying on God in every circumstance. Even more and more, the more you get into discipleship and ministry, we have to learn we can't rely on ourselves. We have to choose and learn how to depend on Christ and the Holy Spirit in every every situation. And a verse that comes to mind that illustrates this well, and I love I love this verse. It's always on my mind when I'm talking to someone who's struggling with this type of thing. It's 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6 says, not that we are sufficient. So notice that word sufficient. You know, this whole sermon's on sufficient self-sufficiency, or is God sufficient for you? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to be able to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So is your sufficiency, is your ability, is your ability to do ministry, does it come from you? Your ability to live out the Christian life, does it come from you? No. Your sufficiency comes from God to be a minister of the new covenant. What does that mean? The life uh, that Christ has called you in with this, this um, covenant you've made with God in salvation. And he's made you a minister to both reach out to other people with that and bring that to a hurting, dying world. You're a minister of that new covenant. So uh, is your sufficiency from yourself? No, it's from God. He's made you sufficient to be that minister. So then I think we need to ask, well, what does it practically look like? I always, I always want to think, okay, I, I get that idea. We need to be dependent on God. We need to reject self-sufficiency. But what does it practically look like in my life? And what does it look like in your life to depend more and more on the Holy Spirit? And I think first we need to ask, well, what's the motivating thing? What should be the motivating thing for you to depend on, rely on Jesus, the Holy Spirit, more and more every day? And I think it comes from deeply understanding and knowing his love for you comes from understanding and walking in your identity in Christ, who you are, who he's made you to be, then you're like, of course I need God. Every minute of every day, every hour, like the psalm, the song said, of course I need him. Because I know and I know his love for me. And that's why I'm I want to I want to put all my eggs in that basket. Right. Now again, a couple caveats before we get in this. I it, I just don't want people to take this the wrong way. It's not just lazily sitting passively by, sitting on your hands and just saying, hey, God's going to do everything for me. That's not it at all. God's given you a brain. He's given you wisdom in his word. We've got to use it. It's an active acknowledgement of how far short you fall in your own actions and depending an active dependence on him. It's not this passive sitting by, just letting whatever happens, happens. And sometimes it might look like to someone on the outside that doesn't really know you, that you are just sitting there doing nothing, but maybe you're really wrestling in prayer. You're actively engaging God, right? So there's an active step to put your full dependence on Christ. And another note, I didn't want people to take this the wrong way. It doesn't mean you never need to depend on other people at all. So I can see someone being like, well, I just need to depend on God. I'm not going to let anyone, I'm not going to depend on anyone else for anything, just God. There's so many commandments in the Bible about like one another commandments, I was thinking of Galatians, carry each other's burdens. That's being dependent on your brothers and sisters. But I think it's subservient to God. It's not, um, a lot of us, I think there's a struggle sometimes. It's really good to have a discipler, to have people to bounce stuff off of, to get wisdom from. But who are you going to first? Are you, do you run into an issue, a problem? You just talk to your discipler and your group of friends and figure it out, right? 
That's not what we're going for here. Discipleship is teaching you how to hear from God yourself, how to know what God's saying to you, how to obey those things, right? You still need those other people. You need to depend on them. But primarily, you need to learn how to depend on God for everything. So those are some things I wanted to make sure that people understood what I'm not saying. So specifically, I'm focusing on what are you looking to primarily for your source of wisdom, peace, joy, getting through trials, all those types of things. For power and ministry, are you, go, are you looking to your own knowledge, abilities, wisdom, logic, argumentation, or are we depending on, am I depending on the Holy Spirit? So practice, practically, let's get into what does this look like. I'm going to take a pause. Somebody mentioned the other day I take a lot of drinks when I'm teaching, but just get used to it, I guess. Um, so first, I think a practical step, get honest with the Lord in your time with him. Like um, this idea, we I think I talked about it at prayer night. Just say, like, imagine actually laying out your life before God. Say, God, you look at this. Look at my life. Look at my marriage. Show me what are the ways I'm just depending on myself and my own wisdom. Show me. I want to receive. I want to change. And then once he shows you those things, don't beat yourself up about it. He wants, like... That's not what delights him at all. He wants you to turn from those, confess them as wrong, and say, I'm going to place my dependency on you. I think that's the first step. And then I think number two, a lifestyle, a lifestyle of dependence on God stems from a close relationship with him and intimacy, good time with him. Um, it's not just checking the boxes, not just doing the actions of prayer and word, but it's really getting into his presence, figuring out what makes him tick, that deep relationship with him. And you only foster that by time with him, time at his feet. But we got to realize that th those aren't just ends in themselves. They're getting you to a deeper relationship with Jesus. And then what I think that turns into is this lifestyle of dependence that you really actually get closer and closer to this idea that's praying without ceasing. I always was like, what does that mean? I don't think, you know, it's in the Bible. It's like, does that mean you're supposed to just go around like walking like this all day? It's like, no, because clearly the disciples didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. But I think praying without without ceasing is this idea that no matter what you're coming up against, no matter what's in life, you're, you're, you're in constant communication with God. You're praying, oh God, I just came upon this situation. Please help me. I need wisdom. Please help me. Um, and I think it's a direct result of depending on the Holy Spirit is practically that lifestyle of, of consistent, constant prayer throughout the day. It's not just like, hey, I got my hour in the morning. I'm not going to talk to God till tomorrow morning. You know, It's this connection throughout the day. So where do you go to when you first run into something? You have a hard day at work or maybe something doesn't go your way with your car or I don't know, you're tired after work and now you've got to come home and deal with your kids and you got to pour into your wife. Maybe you're facing a trial. Maybe um, I was thinking this, this one's maybe, maybe the house is a mess and you're annoyed at your kids. Like, what do you do? Maybe you're facing those strong temptations to go back to the sin that has ensnared you before. Where do you turn to immediately? You turn to God immediately for your source of strength to get through those things. You depend on him. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So saying you've got a time, you're in time of need, turn to the throne of grace, right? So do you realize how needy you are in every one of those circumstances? If you do, then you'll turn to God every time. Every time you'll turn to the throne of grace every time. And I think that's what the practical application of this looks like. I wanted to uh, tell a story to illustrate this. Um, 
I've been blessed so much by the family I married into. I really love Danielle's parents. And there are people that really model this well. I've seen them. They're not perfect by any means. I've just seen them model this. And I've been, I've been kind of like, wow, that's so cool. And I really uh, respect them for this. But a, partic- a particular instance sticks out in my mind. And this was after Danielle's brother's wedding. So we're like, people have been leaving. People are starting to clean up. And her brother, her other brother, not the one that got married, one of her brothers is packing up. He's got three kids and they're packing up everything because they're leaving right from the wedding to go to the airport. So he's got to make sure they have everything. And they're about to leave and he kind of runs in and he's like, oh no, I can't find my wallet. So his wallet's gone. He needs his wallet. They're going to go to the airport. He needs his ID. ID. And Mr. Denner, Danielle's dad, um, stops and he says, let's pray. And I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I wish that was my immediate response more, right? A lot of times I probably would have been like, let's look and then pray if we can't find it, you know, in five minutes. But he was like, let's pray right now. Let's depend on God to help us in this situation. So we just prayed. It was a simple prayer. Let's Lord help us find this wallet. And then we go and start looking for it. So no, we did not just pray and then be like, hmm. you know, we, there was active steps after that, but we were depending on God. So um, we go looking and we look for a few minutes and we were looking in the groomsmen room because that's where everyone had their stuff. And all of a sudden this idea just popped into my head. I, I think this was the Lord for sure because we had prayed, but it was like, look in my backpack, my backpack, look in your backpack, which had a compartment, a compartment, one of the zippers was just open, just the top of it. And I was like, it's not in there, but okay, I'll look. And no way, I kid you not, the wallet was in the bottom of my backpack. Now, I know what you're thinking. I was not trying to steal from my brother-in-law. I would not do that. But I reached in there, and it was all the way at the bottom. I'm serious. This is crazy. I firmly believe I wouldn't have looked in there if we hadn't prayed. That idea was just like, it's just like there's no way it was in there. But somebody had been moving stuff around, and it fell off the table straight into my backpack that was on the floor. I'm serious. This is crazy. But it was just, it just sticks out in my head so much because we only, we only spent about five minutes looking for it. And then we found it in the, in a crazy, bizarre place. Now it might, it might seem like a silly example, but think about that. What kind of dependence on God does it take to have that be your immediate response in even a situation where you just lost something, right? And so time and time again, I've seen them just go to God immediately for wisdom in situations. If somebody's sick, they'll just, before they even start talking about resolutions, a lot of times they'll just pray and ask God for help for guidance, for physical protection. There's one time where Mr. Denner fell off a ladder and he banged his head on the ground. And um, my mother-in-law immediately was like, oh no, people like die from this. So he was up high, he fell, hit his head. And so she immediately before, I think before she even went to see if he was okay, just said a prayer real fast. And then went to him and found out, oh man, he's like pretty much fine. So they just have a dependency on God. And I've also seen it in my own parents. They do a lot of marriage counseling. They've been really successful at good godly marriage counseling, helping couples out of real fires that they're in. And the primary thing they'll tell you that they that really works is they get the couples to start praying together. That's it. I mean, they do a lot of other stuff, but that's the that's the core. They get the couples to, to, to start asking God and depending on God rather than themselves and their own knowledge and wisdom, right? Everyone's own knowledge and wisdom gets them straight into a divorce. But they start getting, they start seeking the Lord together and it works. It really works. Um, I might skip this story. Well, maybe not. 
No, it's had sometimes. <laughs> it's funny to me. Sometimes he's like, ah, I won't go there. And then he goes there. This is just, I just put in a quick note. Uh, it's in it. I always like to think about, about all the truths that come from how I interact and think about and feel about Judah to how God thinks about, feels about us. So some, so this was, this was a long time ago when Judah was trying to learn how to crawl up on couches because he, um, he knows how to do that really well. He's super good at it now. But before, sometimes he'd try and try and try and he couldn't do it and he'd get so mad at himself and he'd just be like so frustrated. And I'm like sitting there the whole time, right? I'm like, dude, just ask for help, you know? And a lot of times I'll just help him anyway because I love to help him. But he gets so frustrated in his own strength, right? How often are we like that with God and the Holy Spirit? We try, try, try. We're just doing it in our own strength and God's almost like tap, tap, tap. Hello, <laughs> I'm right here. You need to depend on me. I think this is the key to the abiding in Christ concept that's in John 15. You know, it says in John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. And and apart from me, you can do nothing. In your own strength, you're going to accomplish nothing for the kingdom of God. But when you rely on him, when you abide in his word and abide in his presence in prayer, you bear fruit. And that's that's what we want as disciples of Christ. One last example, then we'll wrap up. If you think about who in history, if you think about somebody who really depended on God for a lot of things, who pops into your head? Yep. <laughs> Mueller. And part of me was like, we always talk about Mueller. Um, but I'm like, man, let's keep pumping some of these people from history. So Mueller, George Mueller, if you don't know anything about him, you need to read about this guy and other people from this time period. So he lived in the 1800s. He built five orphanages. And he cared for about 10,000 orphans passed through his orphanages and he helped them. That's an insane amount of orphans, right? That he was able to help. And he did it all without taking a salary and without asking people for money. He straight up prayed and depended on God. So this, I just wanted to show you a little example. My, my um, in-laws praying for a wallet and then now Mueller's like, Ugh. none of us are George Mueller right now, but I'm just saying um, this, is, this is out there. It works. So there's a book that he wrote called Answers to Prayer, and it's just a record of of every like prayers he would pray and how God answered them. It's really it'll build your faith. You should read it or reference it because it, they're kind of it's it kind of almost gets old because it's like answer prayer, answer prayer. Okay, all right, prayers for this gets it. All right, <laughs> I mean, but it's cool. It should blow our minds. So there's an there's a just I just pulled a random one out that I wanted to read to you guys. It's from November 21st, 1838, and he labeled it Waiting for Help. So Mueller says, on this day, never were we so reduced in funds for money as of today. There was not a single half penny in the hand of anyone in the houses. Nevertheless, there was a good dinner. And by managing so as to help each other with bread, etc., there, there was the prospect of getting over this day also. But none of the houses had a prospect of being able to take in any bread. So there were no options. They're out of food, essentially. So he said, when I left them at one o'clock after prayer, so it's one o'clock in the afternoon, I told them that we must wait for help. We must see how the Lord will deliver us this time. I was sure of help. He was confident, but we were indeed, we were stretched thin. When I came to Kings, Kings down, I felt that I needed more exercise. And this is like physical exercise. So it's like, I need more physical exercise. Um, being very cold, wherefore I didn't, I didn't go the nearest way to my house. So he didn't go straight to his house. He walked uh, a little bit of an out of the way way to get to his house to get a little bit more exercise. That's all it was. And after 
And when he was 20 yards from his house, I met a brother who had walked back with me. And after a little conversation, he gave me 10 pounds. So he gave him money and handed over uh, for the brethren, for the deacons towards providing for the poor, for blankets, for clothing, for the orphans, for other things they needed, for scriptural knowledge. They had a school going as well. And he said, this guy, this brother that he met on this walk, called his house twice. So he went there to check on him twice while he was gone at the orphan houses. And if I now had been one half minute later, I should have missed him. So if he didn't go on a slightly different path home, if he was a little bit, the timing was a little off, he wouldn't have ran into this guy. They wouldn't have met, God wouldn't have met their needs. But he said, but the Lord knew our needs and therefore allowed me to meet him. So he sent off the money to where they needed. So God provided for him. And that's just a little taste, I think, of the life dependent on God. And some of us think we've got to do everything exactly like Mueller. I don't know if that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's like, what is God asking you to do? What is God asking you to, how is God asking you to reject self-sufficiency in your life and depend on him alone? You don't have to be George Mueller. There is already a George Mueller. You need to be yourself and who God wants you to be. But how does it look in your life to rely on the Holy Spirit? What is a specific thing? And this is a question in closing that has really got me thinking deeply more about this topic. If the Holy Spirit left me, if the Holy Spirit left you, if the Holy Spirit left our church, would we notice? Would we notice? Would you notice? Would there be a marked change, a marked difference because you're depending on the Holy Spirit so much? Or would you just kind of go along life normally? Because if you go along life normally, then what, what does that mean? You're dependent on yourself. You're self-sufficient, right? Let's, as individuals that really uh, want to take a relationship with Jesus seriously, and as a church, let's, let's again, those steps, lay out in prayer, lay out your life before God. Say, God, show me, how am I just depending on my own strength? I want to depend on you. Show me how to do that. I confess this to you. I want to go to you more. And the biggest thing, like Susan was talking about, is acknowledge your need. And then you go to him. You go to him and it can start looking more and more like this constant prayer throughout the day. So we're going to close. And I wanted to play that song again. because I love that. And just think and meditate. What is God? How does God want you to depend on him practically more and more? Um, how does he want you to reject the self-sufficiency and acknowledge your need before him? Right. This is the environment where you can do that. You're loved here. Right. You're loved here. So you can be open and honest with God. So let's sing this um, song together. You can stay sitting. You can you can you can stand if you want, but really just try to do some business with the Lord. So, Amen.